Hello and welcome back to Parallel Passion. With me today is Aida Pritnar. Aida is a computational anthropologist at the Faculty of Computer and Information Science in Ljubljana. I got to know her via improvisational theater, but these days she's more into sports. Which ones? Well, keep on listening. If you like this show, please share it with your friends. You can also support us via Patreon. Every like, every retweet and every dollar helps us getting off the ground. Thanks. And now, here's Aida. Hi, welcome. Welcome, Aida. Hi, Micha. How are you today? I'm good. I just finished work, so let the fun begin. Uh, okay, S- speaking of work, uh, could you like briefly explain uh, what it is that you do? I will try. Uh, <laughs> I wear many hats. So I'm a researcher at a Faculty of Computer Sciences at the University of Ljubljana, and at the same time a PhD student at the Faculty of Arts. Um, and the intersection here is that I'm dealing with computational anthropology, meaning I'm trying to find new ways to include computers and machine learning and data mining into humanities. I also organize uh, workshops in data mining. And uh, yeah, also I help with development of Orange, which is the software um, we're developing at our faculty. Yeah, could you tell a bit more about this Orange stuff? Because you demoed it once and it looked really interesting. So how did you become involved in that in the in the first place? Um, this is the main product, so to say, of our lab, Laboratory for Bioinformatics. And it's a software that tries to make data mining and machine learning simple for everyday people, for people who are not programmers and coders who are perhaps not comfortable coding or who just prefer to do things visually. Uh, so it tries to leverage the same things that you can do in code, uh, but through visual programming. So you're connecting components in in GUI, essentially. Well, yeah, that's that sounds um, really interesting. So how did you even get in, in this field in the first place? This was quite a coincidence, I think. I came back from New Zealand um, after my year away, and I started looking for a job. And while I was sitting at home writing these applications, um, I found CodeCats, which is a programming initiative for girls, and I started to learn Python. And it just happened that at a faculty, they were looking for someone who knows a bit of Python, who can speak English, and who let's say, is versed in the soft sciences. Um, And I was a match. So they hired me for a project and they liked me and I stayed. (laughs) That's uh, definitely an interesting story. Um, And what's happening now with CodeCats? Is that still active? Uh, I wouldn't know. Um, I think it's currently on pause, mostly because the leaders are now fully engaged in in their own initiative, the co-founded. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are parallel events for girls. Uh, we're just organizing machine learning for girls workshops. So, um, we're kind of going from where they, where they sort of left, let's say. And is there, um, enough interest for that? I was shocked. I thought no, no one will apply because... I would expect no one knows what machine learning is, uh, <laughs> but actually we got 50 replies in the first three hours. Oh, wow. And now we're up to 100. So I'm really impressed by by the interest of these girls. Yeah, that that sounds a lot. That's uh, That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to the workshop. And if it's a success, maybe we'll repeat it every year. Yeah, that's uh, how. How do you plan on doing it? Roughly, like, what's the sort of outline that you have in mind? We have we've done these workshops before, and so we're quite quite well versed um, in teaching complete beginners. Um, and the idea is that we'll use data sets that most people can relate to. Um, we have a data set from Parlamiter, which is. Um, a data set on Slovenian politicians, how they vote and how they're connected to their parties. Uh, and there's another one on employee attrition. So what makes people quit their job? Um, and we're going to use these data sets and try to 
uh, teach these girls how to perform clustering, let's say, of politicians, hmm. and if the clustering cor corresponds to their political parties, and uh, how to make a predictive model for for employees living. So can you predict a person will quit their job or not? Where does this attrition data come from? Because that's very interesting to, to what I do, actually. I believe... Oh, I don't know by heart. I think it's either an IBM-created data set or it comes from UCI machine learning repository. But I can check and get back to you. Yeah, we uh, would definitely like to learn more about this because it is a field that um, I don't think uh, enough uh, you know, like companies pay attention to. Like, why do people leave? Because you spend all this money and time just uh, getting them like to first to even like work for you and then you invest in them and then you send them like to to conferences and to education whatever you invest in them and then they leave and um it, if it would be easier to find out like why they leave uh, i guess that can be very interesting indeed to to everyone not just to students learning this yes indeed and i think there's some progress in this field so there are many studies and projects working on uh, finding out why actually these people leave. I agree that you're losing an investment, an investment in person, and uh, then you have to teach a new person the same skills. It's very stressful. Um, but as an anthropologist, I'm also an advocate of a qualitative, not just quantitative approach. So mm -hmm. there were some studies showing that it really pays off to combine these two approaches. So not just data mining and machine learning and using predictive models, but also using anthropology and as a main method of anthropology, ethnography to find out, you know, which uh, variables are important to explain what data actually means and what's the story behind it. Um, it's really an emerging field and I'm quite happy to see that. Is this something that you're uh, facing at the faculty, like people uh, leaving all the time from, from these laboratories to, I don't know, more lucrative position? Oh, boy, do they. <laughs> uh, yeah, unfortunately, we've been losing quite a lot of people um, because the situation in the public sector is not very good in terms of salaries. And um, I understand these people who who leave to find greener pastures, especially because these people are often overworked um, assistants. They, they really are overworked um, in terms of how many subjects they have to cover, how many contact hours they have to do. And yeah, we've been losing a lot of people to, to the industry. Yeah, and also it's a very interesting field right now in the machine learning, like artificial intelligence, all this is now the, the next big thing, well, other than crypto, I guess. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's one of the best paying jobs. So why would you work for three times less? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, why would you tell me? <laughs> uh, for me, it's it's a lot of fun to do research. So I would assume, I do not know, but I would assume that in the industry, you don't have that much freedom to just pursue any project you find interesting. Yeah, definitely. Uh, at a faculty, you can. Uh, so if I'm interested in something and I think it's a great research topic, I just go to my boss and ask him, can I do this? And normally he says, yes, of course. This is, this is going to make a great paper. Um, in the industry, I don't think you can focus so much on writing articles and papers um, as you can at a, at a faculty. And still, there's a nice pool of really experienced people, uh, people who enjoy solving difficult tasks. And uh, for me, it's a great environment. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I think this... Um Going back to to the original like uh, employee retention, I think um, making like being comfortable and feeling well with your coworkers and at what you do is probably the most important thing. Like everything else fades in comparison to some degree. I absolutely agree, and I didn't expect this, but Freeze, so the Faculty of Computer Sciences, is 
really a very fun university. Mm -hmm. uh, we organize lots of events. So we have a sporting group um, where we go uh, for cycling or running. Um, two years ago, I think we did a Ljubljana marathon together. So it's really fun and it's a great thing that you can connect with your coworkers on in different fields, not just not just professionally, but as a person. Yeah, that's definitely um, that's definitely important. Uh, getting getting along well. Um, so, speaking of sports, um, why don't you tell me like uh, what like about your I guess primary uh, parallel passion, um, which is I guess not very familiar to most of I guess in in Slovenia, but also maybe abroad outside of Canada, maybe. So, um, why don't you talk about curling? Oh, I, I would love to. <laughs> um, so I think curling has been getting a lot of recognition lately. Uh, it's declared the most... Um, up and coming? Up and coming sport, yeah. It's gaining popularity in in really amazing numbers, especially after the US win at the Winter Olympics. This really helped the the marketing of the sport. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what What got you into this? Ah, oh, um, my boyfriend. So <laughs> okay. he's been playing curling for a long time and he pushed me to to try it. And at first I thought, oh, this is so strange. I don't, <laughs> what is this? Uh, but once you start to do it and you learn uh, the strategy behind it, it's really great fun. And I like that it combines logic and movement and sport. In in what way uh, does it combine logic? Uh, like, uh, have in mind that I know almost nothing about this sport. So Okay, so, yeah, most people would, when you say curling, they would think of these crazy people yelling and uh, brushing the ice, <laughs> which is part of it, definitely. But essentially, uh, it's about um, how to predict what your opponent's going to do and how to re respond to it. So the idea in curling is you have eight stones. So a stone is this round thing that you throw uh, along the ice. Mm -hmm. um, and a team has four people. So each person throws two stones uh, sequentially. So I'm playing the lead. So I'm throwing the first two stones. Um, And uh, so the, the, the goal of the game is to score as many points as you can. And you're scoring points by being the closest to the center. Um, not, not just the closest, so you gain a point for each stone that is closer to the center than your opponent's. Mm -hmm. So if your opponent is second closest, you're just going to get one point. But if you have two stones that are closer to the center than your opponent, you get two points and so on. Right. And then you're also trying to block your opponent. So you can set your stones in front of the house. So the house is these colorful rings where your right. the scoring happens. The aim, sort of. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And if you place stones in front of the house... You're blocking your opponent, so he cannot score points because stones are obstructing the path. Um, but why is it called curling? It's because when you throw a stone, it's uh, losing speed. It's get it's starting to curl, mm -hmm. so it's not going straight, but it's going left or right, depending on the rotation you give it. And this is the way how to get around the stone. Um, and you have to figure out the right speed the right number of rotations. And this is also where the sweepers come in. Um, so the sweepers with their brooms, they control the path of the stone. Uh, so with sweeping, they are brushing the ice so that the stone will go straighter. So if you want it to go straighter, you would brush otherwise or sweep, as we say. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, you leave it as it is, so it curls. Right. Uh, and it will also go faster because you're warming the ice. You're warming it, not not just like, um, I don't know, wetting it or something? Oh, right, you're not because the brush, I guess, is dry, right? Yeah, yeah, the brush is dry. Uh, so you're a bit, you're warming the ice and you're also um, sort of brushing the pebble. 
so before the ice, this is not just any ice. Before we start playing, uh, the the ice is sprinkled with little drops of water, and this is called a pebble. Mm-hmm. And you would um, so the stone is not um, traveling on plain ice, but just on tops of these pebbles. Right. And you would also control um, the direction by brushing the the pebble. Mm-hmm. It's physics. It's hardcore physics. <laughs> <laughs> so does like after a while, let's say I don't know, after five, six, seven stones, uh, is there still like enough pebbles that it makes a difference if you if you like scrub it or not? Um, normally, each game of curling would last from eight to ten ends. And an end would have two teams throwing eight stones each, so sixteen stones in one end. Um, and the pebble should last that long, uh, mm-hmm. but it, it does decrease in quality after time. And this is also an important part of curling: is reading the ice, so how the ice be- ice behaves. Um, and if it gets worse, you have to predict how the stone will travel. Uh, because it's not going to behave the same, and you have to adjust. And how long have you been doing this now? Uh, for two years. Oh, okay. So this is the end of my second season. Cool, and and I saw you already got some medals like on your on your Facebook. Oh yeah, I'm like a pro. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, it's really it really comes down to the team. If your team is great, you can do a lot, even if you're just a beginner as I am. Um, but my latest success was second place at. Uh, Slovenian mixed team championship. Oh wow! Congrats. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, is there a differentiation between people who sweep and those who throw, or does everyone do everything? How does it usually work? Normally, everyone does everything. Uh, this is a common misconception in curling. Uh, y- people would ask, "So, do you sweep or do you throw?" But you actually do the same. You you actually do both things. Mm-hmm. So, me as a lead, I would throw the first two stones. And then I would sweep for my partners, uh, so for the second player, third and fourth. Um, each team would also have a skip, and this is team captain who is standing in the house most of the time and showing where you should throw. So he's the strategist, uh, or she in my case, because I'm a part of women's team. So there is a difference between a captain and the lead. Um, just in terms of order and maybe what you do. As as a team member, so right. I don't skip. I just throw two stones and then I sweep for the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, and my teammate, she would she would be the skip, so she would skip my two stones uh, for the second and third player, and then she would throw fourth, so the seventh and the eighth stone. Right. And how many people are in the team? Normally four, uh, but you also have mixed doubles where you would have just two people. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, this this changes the dynamics of the of the game a bit because, as you can imagine, in when you're in a when they're they're just two people uh, playing curling, you have to do more things. <laughs> so you would have to throw the stone and sweep your own stone. Oh, wow! It's a bit more complicated. Yeah, how how do you pick up a brush fast enough after throwing? Uh, you're actually sliding with a brush. So the brush is in your hand when you're sliding, and then you have to learn how to get up <laughs> quickly and start brushing. Um, it takes a while. And have you ever done this, the doubles? I did. <laughs> this was my this was my first uh, match, actually. <laughs> Mixed doubles. And I was the very, very last. But it was great fun. <laughs> um, because both uh, myself and my partner, we were both very beginners. We just were playing curling for two months um, but we were very passionate, and it was it was really great to do it. <laughs> There's, I guess, a sort of similar um, way, but like not on the ice, uh, similar game that um, I saw a lot in my youth, um, which I like. According to Wikipedia, it's translating to balls, but um, to, in Slovenian, I guess balinanje would make more sense. Actually, I think there's. Um, I'm not even sure. Like. B- balls ring next to our ice arena mm-hmm. so there's a club that does that exact sport next to us um, and many people said it's similar 
but it's not exactly the same because ice has very particular properties and oh yeah 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 sure it's just as the sort of the aim of the game where you have uh, a certain um you call it a house but there's like the the small uh, like pebble or whatever mm -hmm. where everyone has to approach and you have also the same strategies where you could uh either block opponent or throw them out or um like like it there's a lot of similar strategy there i would imagine yes yes definitely because unlike bowling where you just throw it down and like whatever happens happens mm. sure you have a bit of curls there but that's about it i guess yeah i think the the, the strategy um and the scoring is similar or maybe even the same uh -huh. oh interesting um and What surprised you most about the sport when you like were discovering it, I guess? Uh, it looks much easier than it actually is. <laughs> I thought, okay, you just slide down the ice, right? It's, I mean, how hard can it be? But I was... <laughs> Famous less words. Yeah, I was struggling a lot to, to really... Mas not master, I'm not, I, I didn't yet master the slide, but I'm at least not falling <laughs> um, that often. <laughs> And also, yeah, the whole strategy. I, I didn't imagine it's going to have so much strategic points to it. I thought it's okay. I mean, just you throw the stone and whoever's closer, whatever. Um, and p people sometimes don't realize that it's not just, okay, let's throw the stone to the center. Because if this is not your last stone, your opponent's going to take it out. And then you're going to lose the stone. So you have to think, okay, how I'm going to hide it so my opponent won't be able to take it out. And, you know, all these little details. That's really, for me, that was the biggest surprise and it's the most fun in the sport. Yeah, it definitely sounds uh, like something I would want to uh, see, I guess, in, in real. Because on, on TV, it looks very boring if you don't know what's happening. Yeah, I can imagine. If you don't know what's happening, it's it looks so random. Yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, there are a ton of jokes about curling, which you mentioned already. So um, maybe maybe that helps with like, whenever I see it on TV, I'm like, ugh, next. <laughs> yeah, but this year, I think it was better than before because we managed to get a, a session on the national TV where one of our players also he was in the role of a commentator oh. so it helps to have a professional doing it and he tried to explain what is going on and you know what's the what are the rules how the scoring is done so that the viewers would also understand a bit more yeah yeah that uh, i mean definitely helped me uh like your explanation so maybe next time i, I won't skip but i'll actually watch <laughs> or maybe I'll, i come and see you uh live how, how often do you have like competitions competitions not that often uh, because slovenia doesn't have proper ice arena so we don't have a dedicated curling ice which is a big obstacle Uh, to actually get good at the sport. Uh, so most of the time we would go to Bratislava and practice there. Mm -hmm. And we would take part in tournaments around Europe. Um, for us, uh, Austria, Budo um, Hungary and Italy are the most relevant because they're, they're the closest. Uh, but we don't go exclusively to these countries. Um, we've been to China for a very interesting university winter carnival yeah you got bronze there right yeah I got, we got bronze that's amazing well there were only three teams so being uh, bronze out of three it's not that great <laughs> well you could be disqualified i guess yeah we, yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but it was really fun it was a great cultural experience um and also there are um world championships and european championships where we are, um, so the men, uh, the men's team is in B group and women's in C. Mm -hmm. And is like, um, can ice rinks or for like hockey and those, can, can they be repurposed? Like if you just spray the, the pebbles on top or is there something special about, about curling that 
you cannot use the same ice for? Mostly you cannot use the same ice um, because the skates would damage the ice so much that it's very difficult to just to just pebble it and play. Right. So uh, the skates make lines, like little um, and, and lines and bumps. Yeah, and yeah. This, was, this would change the direction of the stone quite a lot. And it's difficult to play on such ice. Um, but even so, uh, ice making is a, it really is an art. And you would have educated proper ice technicians who, who do just that. They just prepare ice for curling. Um, because it has to be decalcified and at the proper temperature and properly pebbled and straight. So um, we have one such person in Slovenia um, and we're educating some more. So maybe three to four who know how to make good ice. Yeah, this is something I actually read an article about um, just before the Olympics. I'll, I'll try to find it and, and put it in show notes. But it was basically like this guy who was going uh, to the, the venue where the Olympics game will be for like, I don't know, two years or something to to measure everything, to uh, sort of try to approximate the humidity. Because of course, once people are in there, the ice changes so you have to uh, keep an eye on that and like i, th I think this guy would did both both the um uh, ice for curling and for ice hockey and there's in the article also how how like it has to be different in some way probably because of this pebbles thingy oh yeah yeah so the world curling federation i think has selected some the best ice technicians and they probably brought it to the olympics um, I cannot imagine uh, having a person who doesn't know curling ice to to make ice for for this event. Yeah, probably. And um, it, it was really interesting to me reading that, even knowing. So I am interested in ice hockey, but um, knowing nothing about the actual ice, it was very interesting how like they have to keep in mind that once uh, people are in there. So it's very different when you're measuring the humidity and temperature in like an empty hall and once like you have I don't know 40,000 people or whatever there which are old and breathing uh and and there's a lot of like humidity and uh temperature rises of course and if they are cheering or if they're Probably does not happen at curling, but can easily happen at like ice hockey that they throw stuff on ice. Um, so all this has to be taken into consideration. It was like very interesting read. I'll, I'll try to find the the article. Yes, definitely. It, there are so many variables, and I would imagine hockey is not that sensitive to to the quality of ice. But still, you cannot have soft ice, for example, because you're going to be slower. Uh, and in hockey, that's this is important, the, the speed that you can reach. Yeah, and I think um, it has to be less brittle because mm. like when they, uh, when they aggressively break and if, if the ice is too brittle, it can crack and that's, that's no good. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, it's, like, it's science somehow. <laughs> Everything is science nowadays. <laughs> well, it's, it's also good, right? It's you can get better and better conditions for doing sport. Oh yeah, I found it. And it also uh, explains how the eyes for um, uh, bobsleigh and skeleton is again, completely different and how hard it is to apply there because of curves and, and everything. They're like uh, curling and hockey are both flat, but this is uh, on a curve and almost vertical. So. Um, it's yeah, uh, it's very very interesting. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes if anyone is interested in nice. <laughs> I will read it. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, so, what are you uh, primarily? What are your goals now with with curling? Well, in the rumor goes that in 2019 we're getting proper uh, curling ice in Ljubljana. Oh, nice! So, if this happens, and it should. Um, <laughs> so yeah, to practice as much as possible and to push the women's group into the women's team into big group. So that's the main goal of every Slovenian female curler, I think. Nice. Um, and for, for the men, I think it's getting as high in B as possible. Maybe one day giving, going into a group. Um, so for me, it's just getting really constant 
um, because I'm still at a level where I'm not very consistent in my performance and I just want to be consistently good curler. Yeah, but I guess this is also hard because you can properly train. Like the the eyes that you have uh, is not the eyes that you get at competitions, I guess. Exactly. So until we get a, the eye arena, it's not that it's not really possible. But once we get it, I think with consistent uh, training, we can really be um, quite high in the in the world curling scene. And, and until until then, I guess on competitions you are mostly improvising, which is something you also know a thing or two. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> improvisation involved. I agree. You notice that segue? Uh, so yeah, that's actually how um, how I got to know you uh, way back when. I don't even remember; it's been so long. Um, but uh, yeah, improv. Um, you you did that a lot. Well, at least you used used to do it a lot. And um, do you still do it nowadays? Not so much. Um, I'm mostly teaching improv to high school kids. Uh, so this is how I'm still linked to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've I, last year we did a performance with a group of two other uh, female performers. And it was great fun. Uh, but this year one girl was at Erasmus. So we had to um, stay on pause. And probably next year we'll do another performance so another production actually not not performance it's a yearly production right and um is it uh so is it a a certain format that you're doing or is it completely free form so for two years we've been cooperating with uh truber evahisha literature so truber's house of literature in the center of ljubljana Mm -hmm. where they do improv shows um with literary inspiration and uh, for the first year, we did um, uh, pulp fiction genre, let's say. So okay. any kind of pulp fiction genre from sci-fi to romance novels, etc. And we were intertwining this genre into one long form play. And uh, the second year we did uh, the absurd. So uh, the drama of the absurd. Uh, and we had a play on that. Sounds interesting. I um, I also am not going to as many improv shows that I used to do. But uh, as you know, for me, this was, uh, I don't know, for like five years or something. Every every Sunday at 8 p.m. was more or less reserved for improv. Um, but what happened there was the sort of competition style. Um, are you still following that anymore or are you as me completely disconnected with like what's happening there? Actually, I'm kind of in your shoes now. So I'm being a photographer at shows. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, if I'm there, I'm, I'm, I'm a photographer. Um, and this is also one of my passions, but not to the extent where I would be prepared to invest a lot of money in, in proper lenses. So... Yeah, photography can get expensive quite um, fast. But one of the yeah, quite fast. But one of the good things is that like once you get the the basics down, it's then you're it it's that's it. Like un- unlike computers, which like you have to buy a new one every I don't know three four years. With lenses, like once you buy a proper lens, you can have it probably for a lifetime if everything works, mm. uh, unless you like break it or something. You could probably have it for a lifetime, and um, they have great resale value. So even if you're buying used, um, it can still be expensive. Mm-hmm. What got you interested in improv in, in the first place? So how did you get into this competition competition style? I'm. It looks like I'm just following other people <laughs> from this, but um, <laughs> my cousin did it, and I watched some of her performances, and I really loved it. And I thought this is so much fun. I have to try it. Um, and I did. I joined the group in high school and continued to do it ever since with some interruptions. And uh, then I found my new passion in teaching kids improv. And this for me is even better than performing because you really can see young talents grow and get better and more uh, in touch with their creativity. So how do you teach something like improvisation? I'm mostly trying to 
really support creativity and thinking outside of the box. And there are many ways to to leverage their creativity, um, just letting them be. And most importantly, also showing that errors uh, are not bad. So we can use errors and create something really genius out of it. And once you nurture this attitude, so embracing errors and mistakes and trying to turn them into something positive um, is really valuable. And I think the best way to teach kids that that they can they, they can do it because often they would say to themselves, oh, I cannot do this. This is so hard. I cannot improvise. But if you teach them that even a mistake is great, they will be able to do it. They will be much more comfortable doing it. And also this really boosts their creativity because if you know you cannot make a mistake or that if you do it, it's going to be just fun and okay, you're going to make a mistake, so what? Mm-hmm. They just really unleash their imagination and amazing things come out of it. And teaching all these years, did you find any trends with like generations of uh, children? Like, um, is is there more or less interest in this? Is there something like, uh, do they have problems uh, keeping attention or, or anything, anything like that? This is a, an interesting question, but I wouldn't say there are general trends, but each group has something unique to it. I wouldn't say that they have a lack of um, attention, but maybe this generation is, they're always tired <laughs> and always hungry. <laughs> uh, so it's hard, you know, as an after-school activity to keep them engaged and squeeze out their remains of energy, you know, that they still have left after a long school day. Um And also feed them first. That's, that's the key. You have to feed them first and then they're happy and they will cooperate. But not too much because if they eat too much, they will just fall down, I imagine. Yeah, it's mostly just stuff from the bakery. So that's manageable. And why are they so tired? Is it um, be- because school days have gotten longer or like what's happening? Oh, you're asking me too much. Um, I, I wouldn't know, really. Um, but, oh, yeah, there's one thing I noticed. Um, maybe this this is related to, to the fatigue problem. Uh, these children have so many activities. They always have something to do. They're very active, mm-hmm. um, proactive, actually. Um, they're in this group, that band, uh, this performance, teaching, uh, learning languages and... So many things, uh, which is great, but I think that perhaps they're taking too much on themselves. Um, In your layman opinion, are they doing all this or are they are their parents um, pushing more and more things? I'm mostly working with children from 15 to 18 years of age and they're quite independent already. So I would say that it's their initiative. Ah, okay. Um, I would assume they would resist um any kind of oppression uh, from their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think this, it's what they want and um, they have a lot of interests and they want to pursue all of them. Um, sometimes perhaps not realizing that it's, you cannot really pursue everything you're interested in. You have <laughs> to select and narrow down things. Yeah, but I guess it's a good thing to, to try and um, toolkit like improv can like I previously mentioned, can probably help you in more or less every either profession or hobby or whatever it is you're doing, I I imagine. Indeed, yeah. Uh, improv offers a great skill set, uh, at least for public presentations. Um, maybe even not being too hard on yourself, which I think is important. So mm-hmm. if you fail, okay, fail better. <laughs> um Okay, it's it's a bit of a joke, but it's important to know that you can learn from mistakes and not um, sort of judge yourself for it. Okay, you made a mistake. Let's let's go onwards. I know what to do next time. Mm. And also, I guess being like quick on your feet, because um, when I like took photos and were observing different teams, I th- I think the ones that usually won or got the most um, laughs or the most entertainment, I guess, um, 
were were the ones who really could very quickly adapt to any sort of situation like like i said someone made a mistake or someone said something stupid or someone in the audience screamed out something and those teams that were very quick to respond to that are usually the ones that like won or um at least got more laughs than than other teams i absolutely agree um this is very very important to know how to respond to any kind of situation on stage or in in life and i can see it in myself that often i can just be like oh what about that what about this let's do this let's try that um and not just brood over a problem for too long and this can be useful just in life mm-hmm. even if you're just grocery shopping <laughs> <laughs> no yeah yeah i i agree and um I actually regret not doing any of that my myself but at least I was there so I got it by proxy <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but also I think as an improv photographer you have to anticipate the scene you have to think okay what's going to happen next because you could miss a really great moment. Yeah but you know mistakes happen <laughs> so if you miss it you miss it <laughs> yeah no going back yeah good thing about that is that usually um people well not usually in general people have very bad memory um so as soon as the show is over they forget 90% of what they saw so even if you miss the moments like it's it's unlikely someone who said oh you missed that when that guy fall like eh, happens mm. So yeah, I guess don't don't be too hard on yourself if you miss a moment. God knows I I missed a lot of moments. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's that's life. This even shows more the importance of being at a show rather than just going through the photos. If you missed yeah. it. Yeah, that, you missed it. That's true. Is there any um video recording going on nowadays? Cuz I know back then there were almost nothing. Maybe someone recorded their intro which is maybe still live now on on YouTube. There were a couple of really bizarre intros where maybe it would be better if I would miss them. But um, <laughs> um, is is there like are shows being recorded now? I think a while back they were. Um, I just took photos this Sunday, and I don't think there was a camera there. But uh, every now and then, I think there are some recordings being made. Yeah, that's um that's definitely um interesting to watch and like for if anyone in of listeners did not see an improv show before um it might sound weird uh cuz like well they didn't practice any of it like what are they doing but um let me tell you it it's very very interesting. Oh yeah. After a while not performing I tried to do a, a little scene with my students with my kids i call them kids <laughs> um and i was horrible <laughs> so yeah you need you need to practice it's you get rusty after a while and what's your favorite practice like um maybe the one that you do or the one that your kids do mm. oh i forgot the name um or like I, probably even better if you describe it <laughs> uh, so it's it's a syllable game where you go around and you say one syllable and the person next to you says the other syllable and the whole group repeats these two syllables um and and a refrain let's say mm-hmm. uh okay i i remember the name so it's we call it tic tac trululum <laughs> so i say tick you say talk and the whole group goes tic tac trululum and this repeats in the circle for a l- long time uh and the great thing about this game is that it it nurtures anything goes approach so any syllable goes it doesn't matter and it's great when you see kids um uh, some kids at, at the beginning they go like uh and then the whole group would go like uh bomb uh bomb trululum <laughs> <laughs> which is just embracing whatever comes right and embracing mistakes i i guess as well yeah yeah and um yeah that's uh, definitely something uh, i i need to i need to go back and see some shows but if you're not required to be there every Sunday, it turns out you, you usually don't go. <laughs> I've been to a couple of English shows that they do at uh, Medelkova, but that's about it. Oh yeah, those are great. Those are really good. Um, they're, they're different. It's it's a different fat. Um, the group uh, Igloo has been 
performing together for a long time. So they're very well-versed and just great performers all together. Improv is, is a bit more fun, a bit faster. Uh, there's competition involved. So um, definitely two different things, but both great fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, but I, I like when um, uh, they bring people from abroad mm. um, and who are like traveling and then you see a different style of improv maybe that I'm used to and that's, that's always uh, always fun. Oh, yeah. And normally these guests would also hold a workshop um, for improvisers and each of them has very interesting topic just just the way they choose topics for the workshops like i remember one was uh, villains the other one was with singing something to do with singing on stage mm -hmm. um very different approaches um and it's great to see that uh, i'm glad that improv in slovenia is evolving yeah like i said i definitely need to visit again um but um, let's now talk about something uh, completely different, um, which is biking. You, I see a lot on your on your Facebook uh, post, like you bike a lot. Yes. Um, so, uh, do you usually go just like uh, uphill, or do you do like flatlands also? Do you prefer road? Do you prefer terrain? Like, what's your bike style? Style, yeah, that, that's the word. <laughs> I mostly enjoy biking because it's a nice way to go for trips and just to see new destinations. But again, my boyfriend is... <laughs> <laughs> There's a story there. <laughs> uh, he's a bit of a... He's a bit of a... He's a lot to take. So I like I like flatlands. I, I enjoy going, you know, to the lake and um, seeing trees and forests. But for him, it must be uphill. If it's not uphill, it's it's <laughs> worthless. You know, why would you even have it on Strava if you don't... Uh, altitude, right? <laughs> uh, so I'm forced to, to, to do hills as well. Um, but it's, it's great training, actually. So, I mean, when you're um going um like on flat it's you have to be fast right yeah. um and we have track bikes which are not the most appropriate for going fast mm -hmm. um unlike road bikes um ours are more universal in some way um so more like in, in some sense travel bikes um so but when you go uphill you can go very slow um but still get a lot, uh, a lot of workout for your legs. <laughs> and um, are you when when going on the roads? Are you concerned about safety? Given that, like, what drivers do and what other cyclists do, this is something that um, I used to. I used to bike more, but now I'm just afraid of going on on the roads. Oh, you're so right. Um, I, I am worried. I really am. Um, mostly when I'm commuting, mm -hmm. uh, because people just. They rush to work and they just don't pay attention to to cyclists. When I'm going to some trips, it's a little different. Uh, we always choose uh, roads less traveled, um, so quieter roads. And normally, you would have quite mm, sort of respectful drivers there. Mm -hmm. um, but not always. It it depends on on the locality, also on the country. Um, in Austria, they're really good. They would really um, take you over with a proper distance, proper speed. They would really respect you as a driver, as a cyclist. Um, while in Slovenia, this is not always the case. Um, sometimes they would just almost push you off the road. Yeah, I, I've seen all sorts of weird things, like overtaking when they really shouldn't. And mm. either they were endangering themselves or the driver across or the cyclist. Like, it's just, what are you doing? Like, why are you in such a rush on a Sunday? Like, where do you have to be? <laughs> Tea with grandma. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I just came back from, from Amsterdam where the roles were reversed. Um, there, the, the cyclists there are insane um, they don't. So apparently, they have the priority over pedestrians, wow. which is uh, weird and scary. Because uh, 
if you maybe are on the bike lane and you don't realize it, uh, you either might get crashed onto or get extremely mad at. Like they are very loud, and um, it's uh, yeah. It was, <laughs> at at certain points, it was quite frightening. <laughs> oh boy, I'm I'm one of those people who's mad when people are on cycling lanes <laughs> no I, i i completely understand i'm also one of those people uh that are, are am, gets mad where cyclers are on on the pedestrian uh, sidewalk like mm. this is not supposed to be for cyclists what are you doing here and they get mad that i'm there well it's not a cycling uh, path it's just you know mm. a regular sidewalk yeah I, i'm i'm trying to understand everyone's perspective so sometimes it would be really inconvenient for cyclists to take the cycling lane mm-hmm. um, because of how it's organized in Ljubljana and sometimes for uh, pedestrians it would be inconvenient to to take the sidewalk and I try to I try to understand people's position and in most situations you can just gauge what's the reason Uh, for their behavior and if we're all respectful um, I think it can work out what I'm most mad at is uh, drivers who park on sidewalks oh this I mean whoa (laughs) this really really makes me mad yeah no I I understand Um, I even though I'm going slower when I'm running um I also sometimes, let's say it's just around the corner or something. Um, it, I almost crashed into into a parked car when they were on uh, parked on on sideway on on the sidewalk where like they shouldn't be there. Yeah, I'm I'm all for towing away these cars and charging them big <laughs> money. Yeah, I I will support that. <laughs> um, and. Do you guys ever go to um, cycling routes like the the ones from uh, Moistrana through Kranska Gora in Italy um, or others? I don't. I know there's one around Bachin. Uh, you mean like events that are no, no, no. Just for? just the the routes that are uh, reserved. Mm. So it's it's like bikes only. There are they they are separate from the road usually so both in in Moistrana and in Bochen they did it where there once was a railway mm-hmm. and is not anymore so they just overlay it with some tarmac and made like a, a cycling path uh yeah we weren't in Moistrana yet but we were uh in Belopishka Yezera so Lago di Fuzine i think mm-hmm. um and the the bike path is great there it's really amazing uh also down Socha river uh it's a beautiful path especially on a hot summer's day uh, the proximity of the river makes it really cool and mm-hmm. so fresh i would recommend it to anyone it's it's not too difficult and it's so well um designed you have little stops with uh, trash cans and um benches um even some little spots for photography It's really great. Do you take your camera with you when you're cycling? No, uh, just the phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, but phones got a lot better now, so. Yeah. They did. Um I would it takes a lot of space uh in my bag and I already have lots of um clothes because I get cold quite fast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's my biggest problem with big cameras is that usually I have it at home because it's just too large and too heavy to to carry it around. Yeah, I I'm I'm sad about that, but I just try to optimize. I try to not have too many things with me when I'm biking. Um, but maybe I should do a trip with just my camera and without a bike. And do you have any goals for cycling or are you just doing it for, for fun? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, we have yearly goals. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Every New Year's Eve, we make a, a checklist of uh, yearly goals. So what we have to do in terms of like sports, uh, not, okay, not just sports and books, sports and books. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how many books we, we should read by the end of the year, how many miles we should run, uh, how much altitude we should do on a bike. Wow. Uh, and some speed records. Um, so my goal for this year is to improve my 10K in running and my climb to Toscocello mm-hmm. uh, on a bike. Oh, nice. That's that's cool. And uh, how long have you guys been doing this uh, uh, strict numbers game? <laughs> uh, two years. So ah, 
Okay. We we're only failing on books mostly. <laughs> mm. Yeah, but on on books, I guess it's more about quality, not just quantity. Yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. So speaking of, um what would be uh like three books uh that made a lasting impression or like maybe changed your life? It could also be like uh, articles or or YouTube videos or whatever, but I'm I'm guessing books would be the one for you. Oh, you got me there. Um I think one of my favorite books is um Walter Moer's uh 13 and a half lives of Captain Bluebeard. Um it's it's a fairy tale for adults. Okay. And it's all pro science. So I really enjoyed reading that. It's a thick book, but so much fun. Um in terms of articles, I on a completely different note i would recommend um anthropology with algorithms mm. which is my current research field how to do anthropology with computers and machine learning and it's a really nice article uh where they analyzed uh with text mining and network analysis um reports on drug use so um people were blogging about how they used their drug experiences and these researchers analyzed i think 20,000 uh entries um to to find out how people do drugs and use drugs and um it, it's really interesting okay um and and what does it how does it connect back to algorithms um so the methods they used were text mining and and network analysis so they used um uh sort of collocations and um they f- they realize that um words so when you see marijuana in a text the the word that would most often co appear in the text would be um oh no sorry it was not marijuana it was ayahuasca uh and the words would be spirituality, um, tranquility, meditation. Mm. So the setting for ayahuasca was was this spiritual um, experience. And on the other hand, you would have um, uh, ecstasy. And words that would co-appear in the text would be dance, party, um, social, something, something. So um, how people use drugs is... This is this was the research question, and they answered it with, with using just statistics and and constructing networks of co-references, um, which is really, I think, s- so much fun um, when you're because it's a new field, and um, if you can f- figure out uh, human behavior also with with modern machine learning methods, it's for me very inspiring yeah and i guess it connects the two things that you're uh interested in so uh, anthropology and also like uh machine learning and all that yes so i'm trying to do the same i'm trying to uh, analyze sensor data from smart buildings to predict human behavior or at least to establish common patterns ah, i thought you're you're doing drugs and, and writing down right <laughs> <laughs> That's maybe my next project. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and uh, what would uh, the third one be? Um, okay, one that comes to mind is is a video. So I'm taking care of diversity here. <laughs> um, it's it's actually a short animated movie that was once uh, shown at um, Animatica. And it's called, um, I think, Maison en Cube. It's, it's a beautiful story of an old man um, who sort of throughout through through the um, film uh, reminisces about his life about how, how he met his wife how he uh, got children how those children grew up um, and it's also a little related to climate change and the unfortunate uh, reality we're gonna have to face quite soon um, I will send you the link okay yeah um, that good because otherwise i don't i don't know i can find it (laughs) (laughs) um well uh great uh thank you aida for your time this has been um super interesting oh thank you miha for inviting me it's been fun for me as well okay uh 
great thank you and uh yeah have a have a good remaining of the day you too bye bye all right this was my interview with aida parallel passion is a new podcast so please share it with your friends and followings one way to do so is to write a review in apple podcasts or if you use a different app you should rate favorite like or whatever your podcast app of choice supports but please do something anything because it really really helps If you enjoyed this show and want me to keep at it, you can support it with your hard-earned money. You can do so via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash parpasspot. That's patreon.com slash P-A-R-P-A-S-P-O-D. Or open the show notes in your podcast app and follow the Patreon link there. Every euro or dollar counts. Thanks. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We are at parpasspot on all of them. You can retweet, share, like, and submit your feedback there. All the links from this episode are in the show notes and on our website, parallelpassion.com slash seven. Thank you and have a passionate day.